everybody. Welcome to the June 19th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let me first uh, explain why we are all in this uh, Hawaiian shirt garb today. Uh, about a year ago, we lost a very dear friend of the show, Susie Aikman, our longtime floor director, who was a big fan and collector of Hawaiian shirts. Well, we wore them last year as a uh, special tribute to Susie to show her that we were thinking of her, and we decided that it would become an annual tradition. So we're kicking that off tonight. Okay, let's get a quick take on the two big Republican presidential campaign announcements this week. First from Jeb Bush, that everyone knew was coming. The second from none other than Donald Trump as some sort of present to the late night talk show hosts of America. Uh, Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, two big announcements. Obviously, we're probably going to see these folks in Colorado, a big swing state. Uh, what do you expect to think? What do you expect from their visits, visits to the Centennial State? A lot of material for us at this table. <laughs> when he made his announcement, Donald Trump talked about how he was the best at making jobs ever. But, of course, what he didn't say is that he's the best at making jobs for people who make fun of politicians. So it's going to be 12 candidates and maybe four more to come. It is going to be a wild, wild season. And the D Democrats, too. We've got Bernie Sanders coming to town tomorrow. I know people are very upset no one's covering that. But, really, when you've got Jeb, you've got Donald Trump, we'll have time for Bernie. <laughs> exactly. Uh, David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Um, probably two ends of the spectrum here in Donald Trump, which I'm not sure there's a lot of people out there that put a lot of seriousness in his chances of finally getting the nomination and a victory. And then Jeb Bush, who a lot of people already have up against Hillary in the, in the general election next year. What do you think of the announcements? Our nation's history can turn on small things. In 1994, when GW was running for governor of Texas and won, Jeb was running for governor of Florida, lost with this last-minute, typical smear campaign of he's going to take away your Medicare. If Jeb had won, he would have been the consensus, I think, of everybody knows the both of them, and probably the entire Bush family, is Jeb is the smarter one, and he was also, I think, a more successful governor of Florida. He would have been the Republican nominee in 2000 rather than GW, but for the fact that he lost his, his first run for governor in 94. And I think the country would have been better off if it had been Jeb instead of GW in, in 2000. Uh, for Donald Trump, he has a lot of liabilities, uh, including being a complete doofus. <laughs> ha however, he is not the longtime head of an organized crime syndicate, which gives him at least one advantage over the Democratic frontrunner. <laughs> Up next, Penfield Tate, attorney with Greenbridge Traurig. Uh, always a pleasure to follow David if he's going to throw that kind of a curveball. But I guess the big, the the announcement from Jeb Bush wasn't a surprise for me, uh, Penn. But um, uh, I guess what was fun to see that the campaign's all based around Jeb and not Jeb Bush. Uh, th did uh, that surprise you? No, not at all. Uh, and and I think the reason for that is to go back to one of David's points to say that Jeb is the smarter of the two is damning with faint praise. Um, <laughs> I think most people felt all along that regardless of your political affiliation, he is a solid, serious policy guy who understands policy, can articulate it. You may not agree with it, but he knows what he's talking about as opposed to his brother. Um, the Donald Trump announcement, and I disagree with David, um, I do 
I don't think there's only one candidate who may have ties to organized crime. I'll just say that. <laughs> um, but it, it, it speaks to the colossal arrogance that is sometimes manifested in this country that says, if you're rich, then you must be smart and you must be qualified to do everything. And it's frightening. He's going to dump a lot of money on a wasted effort, but Patty's right. It'll be entertaining. Natasha Gardner, senior editor from 5280 Magazine. Wrap it up for us. Well, let's follow up on that. I think the, the presidential campaign and, and people's concern about the lack of new candidates, the lack of candidates that sort of bring a, a freshness or a new take to, or to our election system raises questions about the way that we're recruiting politicians to begin with. I mean, granted, I don't really want that job, and I don't really want any of my close friends to have that job. But when the barrier to entry becomes how much money you make or how much money your friends make, and, and the way that we, we entice people into this, this civic, civic service becomes such a complicated thing. We, we, we've made a misstep someplace. So I think it's time to sort of re-examine re the way that we get people involved in politics from city council and school board all the way up to president. Turmoil within the leadership of the Colorado Republican Party made headlines this week. State Chair Steve House said he was being pushed to resign by Attorney General Cynthia Coppin and former Congressman Tom Tancredo, but both Coppin and Tancredo deny the claims. Meanwhile, Cynthia Coffin announced on Thursday that she is not running for the U.S. Senate in 2016. Now, Patty, there were some reports yesterday that talked about um, that a Denver Post reporter heard about Cindy Kaufman not running for U.S. Senate before this week, so it's probably not tied to this. But this was a drama worthy of a telenovela this week. What do you think? Well, unless Steve House is going to come out and say he's black, uh, <laughs> it's almost impossible to imagine what the story, how the story could get any stranger. It's, we still haven't gotten to the end game yet because he is still the head of the Colorado Republican Party. We know somewhere Ryan Call has got to be laughing since he just in March lost that seat to Steve House, who was pushed by Cynthia Kaufman and Tom Tancredo, and that kind of put him over the top. We don't know what secret thing they may or may not have used against him, this information that could come out and be so devastating. I know Peter Boyles was talking about it today to get to another alumni. Tancredo clearly is involved in this. Um, we also hear it's taking other people, too. So both, first, Mike Kaufman says he's not running. Now Cynthia Kaufman says she's not running. Mike Kopp has now said he's not running. He told Politico, I think, that he isn't interested. Now, maybe that's because... He figures if he takes himself out now, he's going to look really good nine months from now when everyone else has been sullied by whatever is going on. But you couldn't believe the Colorado Republican Party could get any screwier than it was. You know, maybe we'll see Senator Dan Mays next year because he may be the last person left. <laughs> I guess it could be worse. What you're saying is for the GOP, it could be worse in Colorado. David, it surprises me that, I mean... During the, the last decade or so, when the Republicans were having a lot of problems unifying, and it was showing in the lack of any victories in the state legislature or statewide races, I guess that makes sense. You'd see turmoil in a, in a party having problems. But now you have a party that has a, a U.S. senator, that has one of the, uh, has the state senate, um, seemingly some success, and it, it, having even more problems than ever. What do you make of that? Well, and they got rid of the guy who had led them to success, Ryan, Ryan Call, uh, who, among other things, I think did a, a good job on what, what the state party is really there for, which is the, the technicalities of voter outreach and getting the lists and making the phone calls and identifying the people who are on your side but weakly motivated to vote and pestering them and, and, until they do. Cynthia, 
Cynthia Kaufman is not a uh, is a conservative person in the sense of being cautious. So it was remarkable that she alone, among the, the party's highest elected officials, went for Steve House and actually delivered his nominating speech at the at the state convention. And so that that she is the one now trying to tell him to go is remarkable. And I my guess is she's not the kind of person who would do that on flimsy or, or whimsical reasons. But as House's defenders, including, I think, uh, Jack Stray, uh, Strayer, the, uh, the former uh, state Stansbury. party. Stan thank you. The, the former state party chair said, y you can't go out and, say, and do something like this if you're not willing to go public with whatever the charges are. Mm -hmm. uh, Dick Wadham's made the same point as saying, or encouraging, saying, hey, if, you, there's, if there's material there, put it out there so that uh, something can be done with it. Penn, if, if you're national uh, Republican folks right now looking at Colorado as a potential swing state for the presidential campaign, um, a major Senate election of whoever's going to run against Michael Bennett, what are you most concerned about right now? You are scared half to death. Um, <laughs> Because the, the former Republican state party chair who got you a Senate seat, helped get you a Senate seat in control of the state Senate, is now gone, forcibly pushed out by two people who barely eight months later now want to replace the current state party chair. And what I find fascinating about this story, and it sort of goes to the point that Dick Wadhams and others have made, we're going to hear more. Because when I saw Tancredo's interview and what I've read, I think Tom and Cynthia and Steve all agree about what subjects were talked about. They just have different interpretations about whether it was an overt threat or a covert threat or demand. Something bizarre is going on, and, and I do think it's going to come out, and frankly, I think it's going to damage all three of them at the end of the day and probably hit a few other people. There's something that's not doesn't smell right here, and so the, the, the National Party has to be scared half to death because it looks like this is one of these internal battles where everybody gets bloodied and nobody comes out ahead. Natasha, I guess, uh, well, Mike Kaufman, Cynthia Kaufman, and Mike Kauf can all change their minds between now and next year to run for Senate. I'm not sure there's a lot of people out there in the Republican Party that want to run for U.S. Senate if they know this is the fractured party, especially fractured party leadership that is going to be supposedly backing them up. What do you think? Well, I think they probably already know that's the case. We're just now seeing a little bit more of the dirty laundry that's mm -hmm. going on. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that Ryan Call was uh, sort of... Uh, got in trouble for spending too much attention on the national races, but that's exactly what they should be paying attention for. And then, as we've just been saying, that's where the National Republican Party is going to come in and say, Colorado is way too important to us. Stop this infighting. Stop putting it out in the media. Stop talking about it. It ends here. Now, who gets pushed aside to sort of cover up this mess right now will be an interesting thing in the next few months, but there's no way that even six months down the road, the, Republican, the National Republican Party wants any of of this to be bubbling under the surface. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled 6-0 to zero this week in favor of Dish Network for firing employee for using medical marijuana off-site. The decision sets a precedent in how companies implement drug policies going forward. Uh, David, you're one of our two illustrious attorneys at the table, so what did you make of the legal decision and does it set a major precedent for companies in Colorado and poss possibly Washington? Well, Colorado has a, a statute that only a few other states do. It's called the Lawful Activities Statute. And it says that, in, in general, your employer can't fire you for engaging in lawful activity when you're not on the 
employer's premises and it's not related to your work. So the question is for uh, DISH, this awful company that fired a telephone representative because he's got very serious medical problems and was using medical marijuana properly, was never intoxicated at work, but they fired him under their zero tolerance, zero intelligence cruelty policy. Their, their argument is, well, it's definitely legal in Colorado, medical marijuana. On the other hand, it's not legal federally. So the lawful activity statute says you can't be fired for engaging in lawful activity. Does that mean lawful under Colorado law? Or does that mean it's what if you're doing something lawful Colorado, not lawful federally? And the Supreme Court 6-0 said, well, we're just going to read lawful broadly that we're not going to, as they said, we're not going to engraft uh, statutory language which says lawful meaning only in regard to Colorado law. That's a plausible argument. On the other hand, uh, Colorado Court of Appeals Judge John Webb, who was one of the dissenters in, in below, uh, the dissenter below, said, hey, this is a civil rights statute, so if there's any ambiguities in it, we should construe it broadly for the protection of civil rights. But the Supreme Colorado Supreme Court 6-0 went the other way. I'd say both are defensible, plausible legal uh, approaches. Penn, do you think this is the last we're going to hear about cases like this, especially as medical marijuana, even though recreational marijuana is just Colorado Washington right now, medical marijuana is spreading throughout the United States? Uh, no, it isn't. And I wouldn't be surprised if Senate Bill 1 or House Bill 1001 next year didn't deal with this precise issue. Uh, the, I can't see the General Assembly not letting this decision Stand. They're going to have to go after it some way because we're talking about both medicinal marijuana and recreational. We, and they're also going to have to deal with the whole standard of what constitutes under the influence or intoxication in terms of trace amounts in your system when you show up to work. So I, 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 this decision I don't think will stand because I think you'll see a bipartisan coalition go after it right away and clearly try to define what employers can or cannot do, particularly with regard to the medicinal marijuana. This makes no sense at that point. So now you're saying if somebody takes prescription drugs and they show up and they're a little bit boozy or a little bit tired or whatever, you can fire them because they have a really a significant medical problem but they had a reaction to their medication that's been prescribed by a physician. This opens a door that uh, I think the General Assembly won't want to stay open too long. Natasha, uh, Penn brings up a good point because I think this particular case, you have a pretty sympathetic character, this employee. As David mentioned, he, you know, he wasn't high at work or trying to make some sort of you know, chronic back pain. He's a quadriplegic. He has significant issues. Um, do you uh, agree with Penn that we're going to see some uh, uh, legislative work moving forward? Absolutely. I think we'll see legislative work. I also think that certainly in my lifetime, if not much, much sooner, we're going to see legalization across, across the country for both medical marijuana and just legalization of recreational. As someone who's been diagnosed with MS and who struggles with this and is not at a point in my disease where I need medical marijuana, but I know many people who do, it saddens me to see things like this happen. Um, that being said, employers on an individual basis can deal with their employees who might have medical issues, such as a defendant in this case, and, and people like myself who may have adjustments that they need in their work life that seem reasonable. So even though there is a Supreme Court case, it makes it sound like a very final decision. Individually, business owners can make a decision not to do what Dish Network did. 
Patty, do you think we'll start seeing some businesses come out and say, hey, this is the way it should be handled? I certainly hope so, because as David says, Dish behaved horribly in this situation. You have a, an employee who was a good employee, quadriplegic. It's not like he was operating heavy machinery. He was on the phone. So he was not endangering anyone else. It was not something they needed. They could have worked within their zero tolerance policy to accept the fact that he was a man, this man was taking medicine for his condition, medicine that worked for him. So I would hope the first thing that happens is that companies say, let's think about this. Let's really let us, um, let's take the employees into account. And I think we will see the legislature come through with some, some rulings on this because you could not have a better poster child for the reasons to use MMJ than this employee. I think we can safely say this is the other side of the spectrum. The same cannabis advocates that brought Amendment 64 to the ballot announced this week they hope to bring a new ballot measure that would allow private businesses like bars and restaurants to set aside special sec sections for recreational pot use. Uh, this may hit the November 15 uh, ballot uh, pen. A, do you think we'll see it? And B, what do you think, how do you think Coloradans are going to react to it? I, I think we'll see it, but I think for most Coloradans, this will be a bridge too far. And it, it, it's, it's precisely because of the prior case and even what the legislature will do. You know, we talk about with tobacco now the, the harm of secondhand smoke and the fact that some people who aren't smokers don't want to be someplace where they could be in contact with that and, and, and deal with the health effects of that. Well, imagine if you're a person who has a job or you don't drink or imbibe in marijuana and you're in a public venue having dinner and you're close to the allowable smoking session section and you ingest this. Um, it, I, I think there are a whole host of issues with this. We'll see it on the ballot, but I, I don't think voters will approve this. I think we'll, this will go a step too far for voters' tolerance here. Natasha, what do you think a step too far? Do you think people will embrace a scene that so far, the experiment in Colorado seems to have, have worked relatively well. I think the messaging on this this ballot initiative would be the most important aspect of it. You know, in, in connection to what our previous discussion of loopholes and laws that need to be tinkered with and sort of amended or changed, um, one of the things that we're dealing with in Colorado is this question of tourism and pot tourism and where it's safe and able to use that. So this question of, of tourists um, going out into parks and public spaces because they don't have a place, a bar that they can go to and consume marijuana from for so it'll be interesting to see how the advocates sort of take that messaging and find a way to maybe say to Coloradans this is in your financial best interest let's just have this available in some limited spaces it would be um, 21 and over it would be private it would be out of sight and it would you know respond to the Clean Air Act requirements that are are in bars already Patty do partakers need a safe haven Probably, because otherwise they're going to be out smoking in other places. Um, and let's, maybe they can use the tagline, treat marijuana like alcohol and like tobacco, because the, it would still be affected by, smoking would still be affected by the anti-smoking laws right now. So you're not going to be in a restaurant and have a smoking section right next to you. That's not going to happen. There might be a completely separate room, more likely a, a private club, so that you would be going in knowing full well that marijuana would be consumed there. But right now, all these people come in from out of town, and I don't know, I was talking to a friend who was on the golf course, and someone said, okay, I want to go to one of those coffee houses now. I'm like, Starbucks? But, you know, they're wondering, you know, they, they come into town and they think, where can they go? And there is literally nowhere they can go unless they happen to have a smoking room in a hotel. And there are very, very few of those. David, what do you think? Do you think Coloradans want to open this up for tourists or other folks that want to partake? 
Well, I, I think Natasha's point is, is the, the only possibility that it could pass, which is you say this will help our, our tourism economy and will actually, as Coloradans, A, love tourist money, B, can't stand actual tourists around. It's like all these Texans on our ski slopes, get out of the way. You know, you and your fur coats and your, your uh, the bunny slope. Uh, so if you say this is to segregate tourists, uh, and put them away from the general population. So they're not going to be smoking in, in parks or on the sidewalks or things like that. Uh, th that could be attractive. We also were seeing the, you know, as the crackdown on tobacco users has gotten so excessive and then marijuana is going the other way, I predict that in, in five years, we will, tobacco will be, uh, possession of large quantities will be subject to the death penalty, but we will have marijuana smoking in the back of airplanes. <laughs> I absolutely adore the predictions you make on this on this program, David. Uh, let's get a quick take on this last one. The prosecution, the Aurora Theater trial, plans to rest its case today with the defense planning to complete its case by early July. At issue today are the limitations on the testimony that the defense is pushing for regarding the prosecution's final witness. Natasha, um, A, I'm surprised that we're already seeing the, the close of the prosecution case, uh, and B, the story behind this final witness, and we lost, not lost, two jurors, more jurors were excused this week. What'd you make of the events? Well, certainly there's been so much drama in this this trial for obvious reasons. The limitation on, on the, um, in particular, it was the photo of the young girl who died. It's only going to be shown for three seconds. And there are questions and concerns about the emotional impact that seeing that victim's face could have on a jury. Um, so it, legally, I think it's a very interesting question in how juries react to things and why these decisions are made. Um, but in many ways, what's happened so far in the trial is only just the beginning. What, what when we see this this next phase of the trial is where we're going to see the the legal questions of his um, criminal insanity, whether w he was criminally insane at the time of the crime or not. That's where um, it, a lot of the meat of what's going to happen starts, um, <coughs> but it's not going to be as dramatic as the testimony that we've seen up until this point. So uh, still, still a lot of trial ahead of us. Patty, what do you think? And fortunately, enough jurors that it looks like we're going to be okay unless the rate of dismissals come up, up faster. You know, the, you can see why the prosecution is using this woman as the last, um, as the last pro, uh, testifier because her story is so horrifying. Lost her six-year-old daughter who will be shown for three seconds. You know, if they wanted to show it for 30 seconds, that's the reality of what happened at the Aurora Theater that day. She also lost her unborn child, so you can see the drama of that but the fact is, this was an incredibly dramatic crime. And if I were the prosecutor, I'd probably end it that way, too. David, was Judge uh, Carlos Samore fair in how he ruled in just three seconds of the picture? No, I think it was unfair to the prosecution, but he, is, uh, he was being prudently cautious in saying, I'm going to make, I'm going to err on the side of, of the defense most of the time because I know there's going to be appeals, and so I want to make sure that this is ironclad and there's give them as little to appeal as possible should the, should the jury bring in a, a conviction and, and a capital sentence. The big thing for the defense is going to be their psychiatrist. We've had two psychiatrists who testified and said, yeah, this, A, this guy is mentally ill, no question. B, he's definitely not malingering. He's not, not faking it. Uh, but C, he is uh, not legally insane as defined in Colorado. And I think the, the whole defense case comes down to their psychiatrist who's going to argue the other way. 
Penn, wrap it up for us. No, I, I agree with David. I, I think the judge is being very cautious. He doesn't want to create reversible error. And, and I think the prosecution didn't push but so hard because they don't want to create a record with reversible error. The key to this case, I think, is going to be the defense and, and how the defense's experts testify. We have to remember guilt is not the question here or culpability. The question is what's the punishment uh, and the penalty that should be imposed. And, and so the prosecution is going to have to think long and hard about how they deal with the defense presentation of their case um, in light of the fact that they don't want to create reversible error and, and they do, they're, they're seeking a, a, a capital penalty here. So it'll, it'll be fascinating to watch. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, start us off. There's been a lot of talk about race this week, some of it quite lighthearted because of our wannabe black, but the horrible episode in Charleston um, has really shown just how serious race can be in this country. David. Uh, Wild Earth Guardians, the public interest law firm that's the, the tip of the spear for the war on rural Colorado, the, shutting down the Kalawayo, uh mine, they had over 600 alleged corporate sponsors on their website. And now it turns out that the vast majority of these businesses, which they called corporate sponsors, are not. And the sponsors are saying, no, we have nothing to do with these guys, so please rural Coloradans who are boycotting uh, the Wild Earth donors. Don't boycott us. We, we don't know these people. Never seen them before. Ben. Well, I agree with Patty. The two, you, you have the Rachel Dolezal and, and the, the misrepresentation of race and ethnicity it, juxtaposed against the tragedy in Charleston, South Carolina. But also kudos to Mike, Senator Mike Johnson here locally in terms of how he helped respond to that. It just shows you that there are some issues that still we haven't resolved in this country. Natasha. I'll add to the Charleston, just because I don't think we can spend enough time talking about this very important topic. And I would also encourage people to read up on the history of that particular church, what it took to build it and sustain it over time, and also um, support it as it continues on. Uh, say something nice rather quickly. 40th anniversary of Pride Fest this weekend, and do not miss Lonnie, local artist Lonnie Hansen's Equality Cake. We've talked a lot about cakes, and he went out and built one. David. Well, Denmark Vesey, who attempted to lead the slave revolt and was the, the founder of the Charleston Church, ultimately, and Judge Richard Meech, who slapped the Brady Center lawyers with over $200,000 in legal fees for their preposterous, plainly illegal lawsuit uh, over the Aurora Theater. Okay. I, I wasn't here last week, but just to shout out to uh, a statesman we lost, um, former Representative John Buckner, who, who his funeral was last Friday. Um, he will be missed. He was uh, a great guy and a real trustee of the community. Natasha. Uh, Children's Hospital was named one of the top five uh, hospitals in the, in the country by U.S. News and World Report. Um, they do a lot of incredible work there, so congratulations to that team. I'll say something nice, as, uh, as you said, Penn, we lost uh, actually a friend uh, just upstairs from our studios at uh, Free Speech TV. They lost uh, Jason McCain, uh, their d director of development, uh, tragically lost his life last week. Uh, 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 a great guide to them and also a great guy that has been worked with here in the building. He, he will certainly be missed. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that you can catch any part of the show or CIO postgame online, and be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. And you won't want to miss our new magazine series, Street Level, Tuesday at 8 p.m. This week we take a look at Washington Avenue in Golden. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night.